In your Bibles, please, for our New Testament reading, our first reading to Paul's epistle to the Ephesian church. The epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Verse 1, here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather into or gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth 
all in all. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Did you hear the breathlessness of that chapter? It is um, what some Greek scholars have called the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. I think they're right. I think that's true. The Apostle Paul, refusing to bring the thought to a close, keeps piling on and piling on, um, blessing upon blessing, teaching upon teaching, pertaining to the greatness of the work of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God in the salvation of the elect. So, beloved, we have a wonderful chapter before us, one that, one that defies a brief summary, but we shall, uh, we shall endeavor so the author is the Apostle Paul. It's given in the, fir- in, the, in, in the first verse, the first word of the first verse. Probably written during his imprisonment in Rome, uh, around the time, uh, the same time as the Colossian epistle. This letter was given to, to a gentleman by the name of Tychicus for circulation. As for the destination of the letter, we have in our Textus Receptus, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. However, that would be the minority report. The TR has that. The, the, the majority manuscripts, the Byzantine manuscripts do not, and the critical text does not as well. I do believe that it was written to the Ephesian church and that this belongs. However, I believe that also it was a circular letter to be circulated among many churches, not just, um, not just Ephesians. And I believe that because in the last chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul will say, now, when you're, when, you, when you're done with this letter, make sure it's read in the, churches of Laodicea, in the church of Laodicea, and then also make sure that you read the letter from the church of Laodicea. We, we all understand, don't we, the, the parallel between Ephesians and Colossians. They are much of the same structure, although Ephesians is six chapter, ch- chapters, Colossians is four, uh, a more brief statement, yet there is... There's a very close communion between those two letters. I believe that they were both written about the same time, that they were written, this one to the Ephesian church and to the Laodicean church, and then the one, to, uh, the one that was given to the Colossian church was also to be circularized. So while written to the Ephesians, let's remember that, 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 that those churches that were up and down the coast there of Asia Minor, that they all would have had access to it. Okay, that western coast of Asia Minor. So the author is the Apostle Paul. 63 or 64 AD uh, is pretty close. The purpose of the book, you know, this is an interesting one. This one, this one sort of defies, its breadth is, is um, it's simply amazing. In six short chapters, the, the, the compass of the book of Ephesians is breathtaking, the scope that it takes in. You know, we can, we can talk about the Apostle uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church, although a longer letter uh, of much narrower focus in several different particulars. But Ephesians, it just seems to take in everything. It's, it's very well stated. Um, so as a brief outline then, uh, we have 1 through 12, the greeting, the thanksgiving, and the prayer. In 113 through 123, we have a... a particularly astute Christology. In 2, 1 through 10, we have a wonderful statement of the grace of Christ to sinners. In 2, 11 through 3, 21, perhaps the greatest portion of the book 
speaks of the union of Jews and Gentiles in one body before the Lord. That if, if there is a definitive uh, emphasis in this book, that would be it. That Jews and Gentiles are now one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of that mystery that we will hear about as we read on. In 4.1 through 4.6, we have the worthy walk, which is replete in unity that we'll talk about in a moment. In 4.7 through 16, we have the ascended Christ and his gifts unto men for the purpose of the edification of his church. In chapter 5, uh, verse, oh sorry, in 4.17 through 32, the second half of chapter 4, uh, it's divided almost perfectly, 16 verses and 16 verses. We will have uh, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Then in chapter 5, beginning in 1, all the way down through chapter 6 and verse 9, we have the Christian in his various relations to his former self, to his family members, to his domestic relations, and so on. And then in 6, 10 through 20, we have the wonderful panoply of God, the putting on the whole armor of God, and then 21 through 24, the final chapter, conclusion and prayer. You see the compass of the book. If you want to remember the the book of Ephesians, you could remember it as that little book that compasses everything. You could do that. Or you could remember the use of the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, word, uh, sorry, the use of the Apostle Paul and the word one. One. He will use that word strategically throughout the book. You'll you'll remember, won't you, in chapter 4, where he says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're also hearing that there's one God, there's one Christ, there's one way, there's one body, and there's one hope. So if you remember the Ephesian epistle, maybe the word one will help you to remember the things that Paul teaches about here in the book. All right, so that's what we have for our brief introduction. Let's dive into chapter 1. I've divided it up into three sections, 1 through 6, then 7 through 12, and then we have, well, sorry, not 7 through 12. Where'd the rest of it go? Oh, there it is. 7 through 16, and then 17 through the end, pretty much. And what we have there is we have uh, what God has done, what God the Father has done in the beginning, what Christ has done in the middle, framing that, what the Spirit has done. And then beyond that, we look at the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Those four, really three sections. So at the beginning then, in verses 1 through 6, we have these wonderful things that Paul says the Father has done. And what has he done? Well, it says that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ, that he has chosen us in Christ, that he has predestinated us unto adoption by Christ, that we are accepted, we are justified in the beloved, that is, in Christ. So notice that although it's what the Father has done, that there's not one thing that the Father has done, if you will, apart from Christ. Every benefit that you enjoy that comes from God the Father comes to you through Christ Jesus. It comes to you through him. It is, it is in him that we are accepted. Paul will say it this way. We are accepted in the beloved. Um, this is the offense of the cross. 
The offense of the cross is clear, right? People are offended in that you must look them in the eyes as one who would tell them the truth and say to them, you're not good enough. Your best works are imperfect and defiled before God. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags to be thrown out and rejected by God. Your best works that you present before God are not worthy to, to stand His exacting and perfect examination. That's the offense of the cross. None of us are good enough. If we're going to be accepted, like the Apostle Paul says, we are accepted in the Beloved, who as... God became man, made under the law, and fulfilled every particular of the law throughout his whole life, in all of his thoughts, words, and deeds, in the manner, matter, and motive. And his obedience was perfect, personal, and perpetual. In all nine of those adjectives, he has purchased a perfect righteousness to be imputed to sinners, like John Murray says, upon the event of faith. We are justified by faith alone, not according to our works. That's the offense of the cross. And so the Apostle Paul uses a shorthand statement here. He says, We are accepted in the beloved. And beloved, let's remember this we will not be accepted without him. There's no other way. None. We must then rest upon Christ. We must look to Christ. We must cast ourselves upon him. We must follow him. We must receive him. We must come to him as we heard all of those verbs of motion over the last few weeks in our sermon series. Okay, to what end? Why did the Father do all of these things through Christ? That we should be holy and without blame before him and to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's for his own glory. Why did the Father choose to save sinful people by Jesus Christ? For his own glory. And that may sound strange to our ears. It should. We should do nothing for our own glory. And God, being God, should do everything for his glory. That's what it means to be God. Okay, so then um, we, we move on to the second portion of the passage for the sake of time. Now we start looking at what Christ has done. What do we have in Christ? We saw what God the Father has done. Now notice, what do we have in Christ? We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. We have the abundance of wisdom and prudence. We are enlightened, and we have an inheritance all through Jesus Christ. And we have that inheritance because of the adoption of sons Um, Because there is one natural Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him there are many adopted sons and daughters, and we have that inheritance through Him. Are are you understanding yet that what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1 is introducing this wondrous gospel of gratuitous salvation alone? It is through the work of God and not through our own works. It is according to the good pleasure which He, the Father, hath purposed in Himself... And notice the Father is one, one more time characterized as working all things after the counsel of his own will. And so we learn all of these benefits are sovereign benefits. They're not things that come to us because of anything we have done, but God is executing his own sovereign will. And how are these blessings received? They are received by trusting Christ to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. 
Notice what it says here in verse 12, that we, that is us Jews, should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ, in whom also ye trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And then this brings in the Spirit's work in our salvation. We've had the Father's work, the Son's work, and then the Spirit's work. So notice that Paul keeps that standard apostolic order of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in the work of our salvation here. And what does it mean that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise? Well, he'll say it this way. He is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Okay, so the Spirit then is given, uh, the, the uh, Greek word there is arabon, and arabon is used sometimes even, ladies, you'll be interested in this, it's used as an engagement ring. Right? Some young lady walks up to Pastor Todd and she says, oh, Pastor, we're getting married. The first thing I ask is, do you have a ring and a date? If you don't have a ring and a date, eh, you have to have a ring and a date. Right? What does the ring do? The ring is a first fruit. Right? And many of them are sold now as, as you know, uh, uh, they join together into one ring later after the wedding, right? There's an earnest ring and then there's the ring that completes the process, right? Well, some of you bought a house. You know what earnest money is, sadly, oh. right? Earnest money is that money you, you give a little bit because you've promised to give the rest. The Spirit of God is given to us now as an earnest of our full inheritance which is indeed yet to come all right so that that takes us through the first two sections here and yes we've left a lot on the table there there's a lot to speak about but again this is a reading so we move on to verse 15 now paul will speak of his relationship to them to the ephesian church and notice how it begins wherefore also after i heard of your faith and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so now we have this wonderful thing that is both convicting and encouraging as we consider the Apostle Paul's robust prayer life. Every church to which he writes will be the beneficiaries not only of his epistolary communication, but also of his prayers as he speaks of how often and how deeply and copiously he prays for them. This is a good example to us. So what does the Apostle Paul pray for? Let's look at that so that we might take example from him how to pray one for another. First of all, he prays for them for enlightenment and knowledge and wisdom. I'll take that. If I knew the Apostle Paul was praying for me for that, right? Although he's not. But if he was, if I was alive during that time and I knew that he was praying for me for enlightenment, knowledge, and wisdom, take that. Let's pray for that for one another as well. Let us pray for enlightenment, knowledge, and wisdom from God. That we would be able to understand the word of God as it is preached and as we read it and as we study it on our own. That we might have that guide to live by surely apprehended. Not a willy-nilly, not a, oh, I, I wonder, not having no guide, but having that. And n notice 
how he prays that. Listen to what it says again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power and so on. Yeah, that's a lot more than just saying enlightenment, knowledge, and wisdom. Paul prays very specifically, very deeply, and we might say very powerfully for the Ephesian church. He's an example to us in that. We should pray for one another in that way. What is the purpose of that prayer? Why does he pray what he prays? That we may know all that the Lord has done for us and all that he is in relationship to the rest of the creation. And so telling us these things, it cannot but help to be a doxology to the Lord himself for all that he is and all that he has done. And by doxology there, that's just a long theological word which means a word of praise toward God. And then by what power? By the power of God, evident in the resurrection of Christ. In other words, he prays for us that we would know that power. And he's not talking about the kind of knowledge where we can answer the question on a test. He's, he's talking about the kind of knowledge that we would indeed have in our own possession and living it out. That kind of knowledge. A working, a practical, what the old Puritans called an experimental knowledge of the power of God. That we are experiencing, that's where the word experimental comes from. That we are experiencing that power in our lives as more and more we learn to, what? Believe the right things and practice the right things and put away the wrong things and put away error. As we do all of that, this is what the Apostle Paul prays for and what he expects. And then finally we come to the end of this chapter This power, verse 20, is wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice where Christ is. He is seated in heaven. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. The seat of Christ's authority is a greater authority than any other authority. Let's make sure we understand that. That Christ is greater than the king. Greater than the president. Greater than the pastor. Greater certainly than the pope. He is greater than any other throne that can be imagined. Be it thrones in heaven or thrones in the earth. Christ has been exalted to a place he is named above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And every tongue should swear that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has put all things under his feet. Christ rules over all. Now I want to talk about that rule of Christ for just a moment before we close because there's some confusion on that. It says that he has made head over all things to the church. If Paul wanted to say that Christ has made the head over all things, he would have said over all things. But he said over all things to the church. Which means that there's something else to be understood there. There is a, um, 
there's a confession among Reformed Presbyterians and also among uh, the Roman Catholic Church and other churches that believe that, that Christ as king is king over that, that the whole earth, the whole creation is like one kingdom under Christ. But the Bible doesn't teach that. We will, we will see Satan called the prince of this world. The ruler of this world. Yet we, we do confess, don't we, that the Lord Jesus Christ as God rules over all things. That Christ's divinity is a sovereign divinity over everything. That Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being one God in three persons are, uh, have decreed and are orchestrating providentially everything that takes place. Right? He works all things after the counsel of his own will. We've already heard that in this passage. Okay? So in that sense, we would say that Christ is already head over all things. But how is he head over all things to the church? What does that mean? Well, there is, a, there is something monumental that took place in history when the Lord Jesus Christ took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and, and completed his mediatorial work. Was he mediator before then? Yes, he was. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We understand that. That from the standpoint of heaven, from that timeless standpoint of the mind of God, Christ is always the mediator. We get that. But in time, Christ came, born of a woman, made under the law, right? Galatians 4.4. And beyond that then, fulfilling everything that was in the law, being successful in his mission, then laying down his life and offering for sinners, was buried, and on the third day rose again and ascended up and took his seat, like Paul said, at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places. And seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, he is now installed king in Zion. He is head of his church. And as head of his church, he rules over everything specifically in his church. And he exercises the kingdom of his power, that is what he has as God, for the good of his church. The the creative ends of this world are subservient to Christ's redemptive ends. Okay, so in, in, um, in Romans chapter 13, for example, this same apostle talking about the civil magistrate will say not that he is Christ's minister because he's not Christ's minister. Um, without sounding like I'm bragging or anything, that's me. I'm Christ's minister, right? Other ministers. We're ministers of Christ in that sense. Civil magistrates are ministers of God it's a natural office the ministry of the gospel is a redemptive office and these two things are to, ke- are, are, are to be kept separate the civil magistracy although it has much influence with regard to the church is not itself a, a, um, an extraordinary spiritual office it is a natural ordinary office you can be a Christian and by Christian I mean outwardly professing and be a civil magistrate, or not. Just like with regard to a father. You can be, you're not any less a father if you're not a Christian. You'll be a better father if you're a Christian, but you won't be not a father if you're not a Christian. 
If a minister is a professing atheist, he cannot be a minister. This is a spiritual office. It must be accompanied with the requisite spiritual gifts. So Paul is not saying here in Ephesians chapter 1 at the end that that the civil magistrate now answers somehow to Christ. He answers to him uh, as God as he answers to the other persons of the Godhead, but not to him as mediator. Christ rules as mediator in his church. And so that's why it is called his body. The nation is not his body. The church is his body. And that has a fullness of him that fills all in all. That is that that Christ himself through his body is bringing all things to himself. All right, with that then, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.